Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. This morning, uh, I want to start with a question that I will circle back to and ask again at the end of the message. Um, but I, but I want us to kind of be thinking about it. And I, and I, and I don't, I don't necessarily know that we can legitimately answer that question even today. But to think about it and to let it kind of sit a little bit. And the question is this: Do you read your Bible in order to confirm your beliefs? Or do you read your Bible in order to be transformed? And again, I think before you, before you answer and, and before you, you kind of jump on that, I think it's important to really think about how you approach God's Word, how we approach God's Word. Because I think a lot of times we, we see the tendency that is very, I think, innate in us to approach God's Word and find things that will confirm what we feel strongly about rather than going to God's Word in a mindset of what is going to be called on to change today in my life. Uh, because really, um, I think if we're, if we're honest, we need to kind of sit and let this question sit for a little bit and, and kind of begin to understand and, and feel the gravity of that and how we approach God's Word. Um, <clears throat> we've been, the last few weeks, actually, we've been looking at a, at a season in Jesus' ministry where He begins this new theme back in chapter 8 where He starts to talk about how He's going to die and how He's going to ra- be raised from the dead. And He defines what it is, what it means to follow Him. And, and so, so in, in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus defines what it means to follow him, and he defines it with two things. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. And, and we've kind of talked about this, how really the self-denial is recognition that my biases for me and my thoughts and my reactions have to be suspect. Because, again, I am my own greatest cheerleader. I'm my own greatest proponent my ideas and the way I think, I am the mo- a biggest defender of those things. And we need to recognize that, that part of what Jesus calls us to is to approach myself in a, in a, in a denial way, that, that to recognize that that's, that's part of who I am. And the second thing he says is take up your cross on, on behalf for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Um, and in a, in a few weeks ago, I, I talked about that and said that taking up our cross is choosing the way of Jesus regardless of what it costs me. But I want to I switch out a word because as I was working through this this week, I think there's a better way to say that. I think, I think what I want to change it to is choosing the way of Jesus because of what it costs me. And I think regardless kind of says, you know what, whatever ha- comes my way, I'm willing to bear it because of Jesus actually says, I'm pursuing Jesus and I want what he had. And I want to experience what Jesus experienced. And I want to pay the price that Jesus paid for my salvation. And I think, and I think just for me, and, and I don't know if it's a big verbiage thing to you, but, but I think taking up our cross is choosing the way of Jesus because of what it costs us. 
that it's an intentional thing. It's a pursuit. It's not a, it doesn't just happen and we say, well, it might happen. We might lose something. We might not. But because I know I'm going to lose something, I pursue Jesus. That's taking up my cross. And, and I think here's the thing. Here's the problem with the way Jesus defines following him. There's a drive and desire in every one of us, I think, to reconstruct these demands to something that is more amenable uh, to our natural selves, something that, that just doesn't really, doesn't interrupt us as much. When I think about following Jesus and I think about reading Scripture and some of the things that maybe are harder for me, my personality to take, it's easy for me to look and say, well, this is what Jesus said, but this is kind of how that plays out. And maybe it's not quite as serious or severe as, as the wording. Maybe it's, you know, I can kind of move this direction. And we just have this natural tendency to try and reconstruct what Jesus says. And, and we see this in the lives of the disciples and those who were following Jesus. See, the call of Jesus, there's this radical difference between the conventional values that were really held by the disciples and the society and even our culture and our society today and the new perspective of the kingdom that Jesus introduces really in the shadow of what he calls us to and how he calls us to follow him in 831. Jesus' call is to lose our life in order to find it. It's to choose between the approval of others and the Son of Man. It's to become the least and the servant in order to be first. It's to welcome those who we naturally reject. It's a drastic rejection in this world to gain life. It's, it's a rejection of ourselves to gain life. And that's really what Jesus kind of talks about when he talks about what it means to follow him and how he calls us to follow him. And so this morning, we're actually going to be starting out in chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 10. And um, I, I want to kind of give you maybe a little different perspective on the 10th chapter of Mark, because Mark chapter 10 is, again, in the context of Jesus talking about his death and talking about what it means to follow him, him defining following Jesus for himself. And, and there's three stories that we're going to kind of see today, three interactions of Jesus with three different groups of people. And, and really, I think these aren't just stories about his interaction with these groups of people, but these are stories about people looking at what Jesus says and what he calls them to and trying to reconstruct that so it's a little bit more palatable for themselves and not really understanding or hearing what Jesus is really saying. And so jumping right into it in uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> says, And Jesus left there where he was with his disciples, where we left off last week, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So they are no longer two, two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And in the house, his disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so here's, here's, here's what this first interaction is. So Jesus goes from where he was, and he, he goes back into Judea. He, he goes uh, across the, the other side of the Jordan. And here's what's interesting about this interaction in Mark. The, the Pharisees come to him not with a struggle they've been having or, you know, saying, hey, Jesus, we're really having a hard time with how this all fleshes out. They came intentionally to test him. And, and here's why this issue of divorce and marriage is important and the location. It's because they're in Judea, which is Herod's territory, and divorce is a super hot topic with Herod right now. Because if you will go back in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, what you see is there's this tension between King Herod and John the Baptist. And one of the reasons there was tension there was because Herod's current wife was formerly his brother's wife, and she divorced her husband and married Herod. And so John the Baptist actually spoke out against that what Herod did, and Herod didn't like that, and so that set them at odds. And so ultimately, Herod arrests John the Baptist, throws him into prison, and then eventually beheads him. And so Pharisees, the Pharisees, knowing that this has already been an issue, they, they think that, let's ask Jesus about divorce and see what he says in Judea, because that's Herod's territory. And if Herod gets wind of Jesus speaking out against divorce, then maybe Herod will arrest Jesus. And who knows, it could end up in beheading. And that works well for us because we want to get rid of Jesus. And, and so, so the reality is that this isn't really a, a, an honest question that the Pharisees are asking. They're not asking about something that's troubling them or they're struggling with. They want they want to get Jesus into trouble. And so I was thinking, you know, like the other day, if I were a disciple at that moment and I was there and I would, I would be, I'd be, I'd be super, you know, aware of my surroundings and watching what was going on. And I would totally catch that the Pharisees are being nefarious. And I would, I'm pretty sure in that moment, I'd be like, Jesus, it's a trap. And I, we, we, we would have avoided, you know, the whole thing. I just, I would have nailed it and it would have been great. But I don't know what the other disciples were thinking, but but really, it really was this trap that they were trying to get Jesus into. And so they, they asked Jesus, they say, is it lawful to, to divorce for a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce? And Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. He, he, he responds with another question. He says, well, what did Moses command? And it's interesting because he says to the Pharisees, what did Moses command? And the, and the Pharisees come back with, well, Moses allowed or permitted divorce in certain situations. And it's interesting to me that, that Jesus says, well, what was the commandment of Moses? They answer with what Moses allowed, and then Jesus starts to talk about this in the context of what God designed. See, they're coming at Jesus from a position of design, and, they're, and, and really the Pharisees have a pretty solid belief about marriage and divorce because they had developed, they basically had redefined marriage throughout Jewish history from the time that Moses gave that allowance 
as Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, not because that's how Jesus, God designed marriage, but because of your hardness of heart. And so divorce was only allowed to be done if it was initiated by the husband. And there's a couple different schools of thought in the Jewish rabbi culture about divorce and, and how it was permitted. There was a school of Shammai who was a rabbi who was probably the, the minority opinion about divorce. And, and he basically taught that you could only divorce your wife if she was unfaithful. And so he just kind of kept it pretty, pretty neat and tidy, pretty specific. But then Hillel, who was another rabbi who taught, and this was more the common belief because, of course, this is more, more uh, convenient, is he taught that uh, a, a husband could divorce his wife if she didn't accept his control. Uh, that even went further to uh, the point of um, not liking her behavior. In fact, uh, Josephus, the his Jewish historian who we get a lot of history over the, during the Roman Empire in, in Judaism, uh, Josephus famously divorced his wife because uh, he didn't uh, care for her behavior. Uh, moving even beyond that, um, that school of thought taught that um, you could also divorce if she spoiled a meal or you just found one more fair than she. So uh, it, you can see there's some redefinition of what God designed and defined as marriage and the significance of marriage over, over the time. And, and here's, here's why I bring that up. And, and here's something that I think we need to make a note of and maybe even wrestle with a little bit. God has not been honored in marriage, not by Israel and not by the church. The design and definition of marriage was broken long before the Supreme Court ruled on same-sex marriages. I think it's important that we recognize that. That the Supreme Court ruling was not the straw that broke the camel's back. Because long before that, the church and God's people were already redefining marriage to their own convenience. But let's be candid, it's far less personal and painful for most people to target same-sex marriage than be honest about the state of divorce and of married believers living in community far from God's design, specifically a design that reflects his love for the church. I think it's just something that we probably have to recognize and admit before we, we really go out and point fingers and recognize that this whole redefinition of marriage started with us, even in the time of Jesus. You see, in this, in this interaction with Jesus, the Pharisees in the church have taken a concession to human sinfulness that Moses mentions and made it the norm. And, and, and so we see how there's this, again, reconstructing of what it means to follow Jesus. And so then in verse 13, we move on and we see another, another thing that happens. And so in verse 13, it says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
And so now we, we have this scenario where, where parents are bringing their children to Jesus as he's teaching and as he's moving about, and the disciples are stopping them and saying, no, 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 this is no children. And, and really the disciples were just living out the mentality, the perspective that was common during that day, and that, that was this, that children were the least important members of society. In fact, one of the beliefs about childhood, which I'm tempted to kind of run with, but the, the belief is that childhood is the unavoidable interim between birth and adulthood. And I think that sounds fair, doesn't it? But maybe not. But, but that's the belief that they had, that it was just this inconvenient, uh, necessary, but, but not productive reality between being born and becoming an adult. Children, they were seen as consumers only, that they didn't contribute anything to society. And this kind of bears out in the fact that six of 10 children didn't reach the age of 16 in the time period that, that Jesus was ministering. And, and so, so the disciples were kind of keeping that mentality, even though literally days before, Jesus just talked to the disciples about children. Does anyone remember last week's sermon? Anyone? Anything unique about it that would make you remember it? Yes, that Kyle had Jeremiah up here, and Jeremiah was an angel. They claim he's not in real life, but, 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 but they, he had him, and no one's forgotten that, right? Everyone remembers that, and that was a week ago. The disciples, for some reason, couldn't remember what Jesus did days prior and now they're telling the children to get away from him. And I thought, you know, to like one-up Kyle, I thought maybe I should have my son Josh come up here and I could hold him while I preach. He probably wouldn't do it anyway, but I also don't want to do that. <laughs> so more power to Kyle. But anyway, <laughs> the reality is that here the disciples had already forgotten the lesson. Jesus just got done teaching them in private. And Jesus' response to his disciples in that moment contains irritation and almost repugnance at their attitudes. See, they were about being productive and they were about being efficient and children are messy and Jesus only has time for the adults. See, the disciples and the church have often taken productivity or value that they place on things as an excuse from the inconvenient, the inconsequential, and the inefficient. So moving on to the third story. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is different than the Pharisees coming to him because they were all about trapping Jesus. This man coming to Jesus, he is running after Jesus. He kneels before him and asks a question in all honesty because he wants eternal life. He seemingly believes the best about Jesus. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him didn't say, you liar, <laughs> but he kind of accepted that this guy was an upstanding moral person. And, and, and Jesus, said, look, he says, looking at him, loved him and said to him, 
You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astounded and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. No one can be saved. But with God, for all things are possible with God. And, and so here Jesus is, is setting out after this incident with, with the children and the rebuke of the disciples, and this man runs up to him, bows down before him, and, and this guy is successful. He's wealthy. He's, he's kind of everything that, that everyone in Jewish society wanted to be. In fact, in Jewish society, they saw success and wealth as a mark of God's blessing and his favor on a person. So if you were successful and you had some means, then in that society, they would say, well, obviously God has some favor for you and you are being blessed by God. That isn't necessarily what the Old Testament that they were basing that on teaches. But again, it was more convenient for them to think that way. And, and so they would see this man, this man who came up to Jesus. The disciples would even look at him and think, this is a guy who God's hand is on. Not only that, but Jesus says, Jesus recognizes that this guy is looking at Jesus as not just a prophet, but possibly God. He says, only, only God is good. And then he says, obey the commandments. And he, and he finds in this that this guy is a moral, upstanding guy who has, has kept the commandments as well as he could. And he knew Scripture. He was familiar with Scripture. He wasn't a stranger to it, but he knew Scripture apparently pretty well. And he had a clear conscience, and he was even, in a sense, approved of by Jesus. Because Jesus says he loved him, and Jesus said, come follow me. Because you need to remember that there's moments where people had an experience with Jesus, and they came to him in faith and salvation, and Jesus, they said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, I, I, you, I don't want you, don't follow me, don't come with me. But Jesus actually invites this guy to come with him. Like the, the deepest level of discipleship, to walk with him in the 12 and maybe even become a disciple. And so Jesus says, but there's one thing you need to take care of. He says, I need you to go and sell all your possessions to the poor and then come and follow me and, and we'll be good to go. And, and the man's problem is that he really couldn't trust Jesus apart from his own success and self-reliance. And see, he didn't get angry with Jesus, did he? he was, it said he was disheartened. He, he's, his heart hurt because there was this tug inside of him that he thought, I really want to follow Jesus. I don't think I can give those things up. I don't know if, if, if I'm really going to be provided for, and I've worked hard. And really what this man was doing was he was hoping that, that his success and his high morality would be enough for, for entrance into the kingdom and eternal life. Isn't that true that, that so often we would like to use our high morality and even sometimes our success to 
differentiate ourselves from others around us and kind of say, you know, I, I am, I'm a little better than you, let's be honest, because I am more moral and I am maybe a little more successful, and that probably reflects that God, you know, is maybe more favorable toward me than you. <laughs> Isn't that sometimes what we want? We might not admit it, but we kind of want that. You see, this would-be disciple and the church have often taken morality and knowledge as a substitute for dependence and surrender. You see, I'm going to come back to these three stories in a second, but I want to I give you kind of a bucket or a container to think about these interactions and how you and I fit into those. July of 1999, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. died in a plane crash in the Atlantic Ocean uh, off of Martha's Vineyard. And so there was an investigation in the plane crash, and the crash was ruled pilot error. Specifically, it was ruled that it was, it was spatial disorientation by the pilot. Um, and to, to understand spatial disori disorientation, um, I want you to watch a short video. Flies into the clouds, pilots no longer have any outside visual references that can give them a sense of direction. Because of that, they may have the feeling that the aircraft is flying horizontally, while in reality it is banked and making a turn. This feeling is called spatial disorientation and it can be a contributory factor in serious aircraft accidents. Spatial disorientation is an overpowering feeling one that a pilot can only overcome by systematically checking the flight instruments. But if a pilot is distracted from the instruments and he guides the aircraft by his senses, sensory illusions possibly form a serious threat. That's because in flight, the organs of balance give the pilot misleading information about the aircraft motion and orientation. Here's, here's the connection. When it comes to following Jesus, I think just like the pilot who trusts his senses, his internal senses, over the external flight instruments, we tend to trust ourselves over the very words of Jesus. We tend to be really confident in what we think and what we feel and what we, we believe, and we tend to go with that over the instrumentation that God has given us which keeps us going in the right direction. How often do, do we feel like, yeah, I'm on target, I am, I am doing it, and then we come to find out that we're so far off track. And, 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 and so we take liberty with concessions the Bible makes. We say our way is more productive than maybe the way Jesus outlines in the Word. And we substitute morality and even knowledge of Scripture to excuse ourselves from self-denial and taking up our cross. And, and the reality is that Scripture does make certain concessions and that, and that, and that it, there is a reality that sometimes what Jesus calls us to do feels like it's not as productive and it doesn't fit with the values of our culture and what we live in. And the reality is it's, it's Scripture the knowledge of Scripture is super important. In fact, that's how we know how to follow Jesus. And that would obviously result in living a more moral life. 
But the problem is that we tend to use some of those things to excuse ourselves from the very definition of what Jesus says is following him. And, and, and so you and I, I think if we're honest, we suffer from spatial disorientation all the time. And here's the really devastating thing. Just like the pilot that was flying John F. Kennedy's Jr. plane, we're killing the passengers that God has entrusted to us when we kind of go with our own thoughts and go with our own way. And, and so, really, if, if, we, if we look at this this way and recognize that you and I are very easily subject to the spatial disorientation in our lives, that really what we need is that external instrument like the Word of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the, the body of Christ to help keep us because, you see, we may think we're, we're going straight and we're going forward, but we're in, in the midst of, of a very dangerous situation when we're not recognizing the authority of those external things that God has given us in our lives. And so going back to the stories that were told, see, the Pharisees and the disciples and that rich young man, they were all suffering from spatial disorientation. The Pharisees were so disoriented that all they could see was to get rid of Jesus because he was interrupting their lives. And they didn't want to step into self-denial and taking up their cross. And the disciples, they were looking to do what was most productive, and they were, they were executing ministry with their value system, and they were disoriented because Jesus already had told them that he functions by a different set of values. And the rich young man was disoriented, and he went away sad because he just couldn't trust that God would take care of everything if he gave up his relevance, and, and his ability to provide for himself. And so, and so the way of Jesus, of following Jesus the way he defines and calls us to in the area of marriage, see, the Pharisees could have asked a different question and it would have been so much better. Rather than setting up a test or a trap for Jesus, if they had come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what is, what is really God's design and desire for marriage? What does that look like? That's a, that's a real question. That's an honest question. That's a searching question, even if you're struggling. And probably Jesus would have responded something to the, to the extent of maybe, well, God designed it to be lifelong. God designed it for, for intimacy. God designed it with permanence. But, but most of all, it's a vision of my relationship and my love for the church. That that's what God did. That he designed it so it would be a picture that you could better understand the work of redemption and salvation and God's love and his, his care for the church. Probably Jesus would have answered some way like that. And so my question then for me is this, what does that require of me? What, to, to honor marriage in the way that God designed it. Well, it takes self-denial and taking up my cross. Because I can't fulfill my role as a husband in marriage without self-denial and without recognizing that there will be choices I have to make and things that I have to do that are for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel that will not cater to what I think is best for me or what I want most. 
as, as relating to people and productivity and value? What does Jesus do with the inconvenient and the inconsequential and the inefficient? He spent most of his ministry with those people. I mean, the disciples, for one, here they couldn't even remember his teaching from a couple days ago. And he's constantly having to correct them and re refocus them. The disciples are, are maybe in the Gospels some of the most disor disoriented people in, 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 the, in the story of Jesus, but we can't really take shots at them because we're just as bad. And so what does Jesus require of me when it comes to the inconvenient, inconsequential, and inefficient? Self-denial and taking up my cross. Recognizing that that I need to not cater to what's best for me, but to the, for those who maybe aren't valued by society, that aren't valued in the world around me. And it takes me taking up my cross for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel, for their salvation, for their redemption, that I would deny myself and take up my cross. What about money and success and morality? See, morality and knowledge of Scripture and a blessed life doesn't necessarily mean I am in a right relationship with God. There's thousands of examples of men and women who knew Scripture and they were not right with God. There are lots of examples of highly moral individuals who are not right with God, and there are examples of many people who seem to be the most successful who are not right with God. It doesn't mean that you're right with God. And so Jesus asks, am I willing to surrender everything for his sake and the sake of the gospel? What does that require of me? It requires self-denial and taking up my cross. Do you see how the definition of following Jesus that Jesus gives applies to all of these areas and how, how the Pharisees and the disciples and this young man, they were trying to say, hey, Jesus, is there... I know you said that it's about denying myself and taking up my cross, but what about, what about just living a good moral life? I mean, I can, I, that's more attainable because I don't want to deny myself. Or Jesus, what, what, about, what about if I just spend my time with people who, who don't frustrate me? Like that's, I'm, I mean, I think I can nail that pretty well for the most part. And so let's do that instead. Let's make that the requirement of following Jesus. So it's interesting, in verse 28, Peter, Peter jumps in, which we always expect somebody, and typically it's, it's Peter who jumps in. And, and here's Peter's opportunity to, to maybe demonstrate how what Jesus just said to this young man, Peter to kind of be that, that that example of, hey, well, Jesus, I did it the right way. And so Peter says in verse 28, he says, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And just think about this for a second, because what, what we're seeing here, the context is that Jesus says to this man, here's what I need you to do. I want you to go and sell all you have, give everything away and come follow me. And he goes away, he says, I can't do that. And so Peter says, I did. That's me, Jesus. You're actually talking, you just described me, how weird. Like, and so, and so Peter's kind of like, well, Jesus, see, we, we did all this. We gave all this and we followed you, which is interesting because I don't know how that works. And I don't know what degree G Peter was saying, we've given up everything. Because I do know that when they went to Capernaum, that they stayed at Peter's house. 
But maybe he was renting it out, so he didn't have full use of it. And, and when Jesus did, was crucified, the disciples went back to fishing, and Peter got all his nets back. And maybe they were in storage. And you know, when stuff is in storage, it's kind of like you've given it up, right? But it's interesting. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus responds by saying this, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. I'm going to skip the next part because I don't like it. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And, and, so, and so Jesus says to Peter, he says, look, if, if you've done that for the right reasons because you are following me out of self-denial and taking up your cross for my sake and the gospel's sake, then yeah, you nailed it, Peter. But he says, Peter kind of says this in a way that, look how much we've given up. And Jesus says, you haven't actually given up that much. Because Jesus comes back and he says, there is no one who's given up any of these things for my sake, that will not gain a hundredfold. So he says, if you've given up mother, father, children, lands, all of these things, he says, you will be given right now in this age a hundredfold. And we say, okay, how does that work? Because if I have to give up my family for following Jesus, I don't get, I don't get that. Here's what, here's, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you get a whole nother family. You get way more moms and dads and childrens and brothers and sisters and lands and homes because you have the global family of God, which is significantly bigger than, than my immediate family. And so many people have experienced the family of God. And, and here's the problem is that so often we reject that blessing that Jesus talks about because we separate ourselves from the family of God because we argue about things that probably aren't very important. You say, well, because they're not like me, you know, I, do, we, do we realize that we have moms and dads and brothers and sisters and children all over this planet who we can't even speak the same language, but we're in the same family, and that's who Jesus talks about is that hundredfold blessing. And I think that's why Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would have unity because it was part of the, if we don't have unity, then we miss the blessing that God has for us in the family of God. And then there's that part that I skipped. Because Jesus says, what you'll get now is a hundredfold in replacement, and you'll get persecutions. You see, he says, in this life, not only will you get the family of God, but you'll also get persecution. You're, you are going to be persecuted like Jesus because you're following Jesus. And if you take up your cross for my sake and the gospel's sake, that means you are going to be rejected to some degree, and you will be persecuted by the world around you. Then he says, and later, you'll, be, you'll have eternal life and all that, that that entails. But Jesus says, you know what? It's going to look different than you think because it's going to look different than what the world shows us because the first will be last and the last will be first. And so you need to adjust your focus of what this looks like. So kind of back to that question that I asked at the beginning, 
Do you read your Bible in order to confirm your beliefs, or do you read your Bible in order to be transformed? And I think that's a question that is heavy enough and significant enough that I don't know if I can answer that question consistently the way I want to. And I think that's a, a question that we should wrestle with and struggle with. And so, so as, as I close this morning, I'm going to invite the, the band back up and, and we're going we're gonna to express ourselves in some more worship and in, in lifting our voices. But here's a couple of questions that I would ask you to wrestle with this week. One is this, where am I trying to adjust how Jesus calls me to follow him? Where in my life if I, am I trying to adjust that? Chances are good that it's not going to be a short list because we are really good at, at trying to shift things in our favor. And then the follow-up question to that is this, who will I confess that to and ask them to follow up? See, that's part of the, the, the beauty in what God has blessed us with, this global family, that, that, that because we all suffer from this spatial disorientation, that, that we are not really great. Even when we figure out where we're off, we're not great at fixing that because we're still disoriented. And so that's where we need the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to come in. And so when you figure out, when you start that list of things that you've adjusted, then share that with someone and ask them to follow up with you and ask you how that's going because they're that outside external instrument that can tell you if you're going straight down the line or you're veering off course. You see, we can't say, Jesus, I know a better way, and Jesus say, deny yourself and take up your cross, and both of those things be true. One of those things can't be true because they can't coexist. And that's why Jesus calls us to follow him in this way. Father, I, I pray this morning that you will, God, confirm what we need to do in light of your word this morning and this week. And Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that, that our senses and, and, and what we think about ourselves, our thoughts and, our, and, our, and our, our behaviors, that God, we would recognize that we do have this disorientation. And, and Father, I pray that we would recognize the difficulty in following ourselves. Father, I pray that this won't result in shame, but it will result in gratitude that, God, you are there to transform us and make us more like Jesus. God, help us to stop trying to redesign how to follow you and God, that you would help us to deny ourselves and take up our cross for your sake and the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.